0: Welcome to Raising Rochester. I'm your host, Pete Neposny. Raising Rochester is brought to you by The Children's Agenda and focuses on the key issues affecting children and families in Rochester and New York State. My guest today is Jack Peltz. Jack is a clinical psychologist who specializes in sleep issues, especially among adolescents. September's back to school time in this community, and the school schedule changes the sleep schedule for many kids. I figured a conversation about sleep, especially adolescent sleep, would be particularly topical. Hope you enjoy. Jack Peltz, welcome to Raising Rochester. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much for inviting me. All right. So Jack, uh, let's talk a little bit before we get into the topic of today, which is sleep and sleep for children of all ages, but we're going to kind of focus on challenges that adolescents have with sleep. I want to give our, our listeners a little bit of a sense of, of who you are, how you came to, to be interested in these topics, and, and sort of what your professional background is. So uh, give us the, the short bio of, of Jack Peltz. Um, did you grow up around here, or did you grow up, and, and kind of how did you uh, find your way to Rochester? Sure. So I grew
1: up a pretty privileged white kid from the suburbs of New York City. I lived uh, at home until I went to a boarding school in high school, and then ended up going to college in Vermont. And so um, my, I didn't actually come to Rochester until 2007 to get my Ph.D.,
0: And your PhD was in uh, psychology, correct? In
1: clinical psychology.
0: Okay, when did you first become interested in in clinical psychology?
1: So, believe it or not, I was a Japanese major in college. No kidding. And I ended up moving to Japan, working over there, and then when I came back, um, I fell into teaching. And I've really loved being a teacher, and that uh, started in middle and high school, and I did that for about eight years. So I've always enjoyed working with kids and families, And after about eight years, I realized I want some more training in this. I actually want to go into more depth. And I started a program at Tufts in child development. And so that focused on developmental psychology. But I really fell in love with the research around children and families. And after that two-year program, or during that two-year program, I decided, you know what, clinical psychology sounds really neat. Um, Understanding sort of dynamics within families and, and how they affect kids. And that's what brought me to Rochester.
0: Great. So then you got your your PhD at the University of Rochester, did mm-hmm. some research and some uh, internship placements, things like that here. Um, and then uh, now you're uh, your professor at Damon College mm-hmm. in in Buffalo, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but you still live in the city of Rochester. You're uh, a city parent. Your kids are in yeah. city schools here, correct?
1: Yeah, we're very dedicated. We are enamored of the city. And we stayed in the city because uh, we think it's such a cool place, great community. So uh, I have a daughter at School of the Arts and a daughter at the Genesee Community Charter School. Oh,
0: great. And for those listeners, the reason Jack and I know each other is we were next door neighbors for uh, several years until uh, his family got sick of mine and they decided to move uh, several blocks away. Uh, True.
1: When we moved, it <laughs> uh, all of a sudden just the daylight came out. And uh, no, we miss you guys as neighbors. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and it's, it has been tricky during the, the pandemic when you <laughs> don't see people quite as much anymore. But it's it's great to connect with you today. Gotcha. So how did you focus? How did you begin to focus on, on sleep, both in your research and then I know you've also, um, you've helped me. <laughs> We've talked about <laughs> having trouble getting um, right. uh, young children who, uh, who desperately need to sleep but do not appear to. Um, to actively want to in the moment, uh, get to bed. So how'd you become interested in this and, and what research have you done over the past several years? So sleep
1: became really important to my research life uh, when I was doing my dissertation in 2012, 2013. So at the time, I was putting together a study that looked at family dynamics and looking at how families with toddler age children adapt and change over time. And at the time, I had a six-month-old, and she was not sleeping well. And I thought, how can I look at the life and dynamics of a family without involving toddler sleep and children's sleep? And so that was literally a a four-item questionnaire that we included in the survey. Okay and it became the first research paper that we put out um, on sleep. And it started me on this sort of quest to understand about sleep. And so it really, really started from semi-personal experience and then just in terms of thinking about uh, what was affecting my life, but then also what I thought would be really important in the lives of of families.
0: So yeah, so give our our listeners a kind of a 30,000-foot view of, of sleep from a Developmental perspective, and and um, what is that? Um, what does that look like for a newborn, for you know younger children? You know, let's say preschool age, then kids who are elementary school, and then moving into into adolescence. What's sort of what's your understanding of of how people, very young people, approach sleep?
1: Sure. So sleep begins in terms of infancy, with a child learning to consolidate that time. So they're actually developing a circadian rhythm. Infants have been inside mama's belly uh, and have not been exposed to the cycles of daylight and dark. And so as they now you know, enter entering the world, uh, they are up throughout uh, the night and during you know, the, the day, and, uh, but predominantly also sleeping uh, the majority of the time. And so the goal, and it's not that the infant has the goal, but the sort of uh, certainly one hope that a parent can have is that the child will begin to con- consolidate sleep, so sleeping as it gets dark, waking up when it gets light. Now, it's interesting to put it in that regard because when you talk about infant sleep and you know within the first six months, within the first year, the child consolidating sleep uh, towards that more regular uh, going to sleep in, when it, you know, in, in dusk, waking up in the morning, and that there's a direct connection with parents and parenting. And so I'm sure as you've experienced with your kids that, uh, and I have experienced with mine, that when a child is not sleeping, a parent is not sleeping. And that so is there's very much a, a family aspect to sleep that has been a really important piece of, of what I do and the way I uh, view sleep. But in terms of infancy, um, the, the young child is, is working towards consolidating, so the infant, um, and as they enter into uh, you know, the first year of life, uh, you know, toddlerhood, uh, that sleeping period becomes uh, more consistent with, uh, um, with the circadian rhythm, with the, the starting of the, the night and the, and the uh, sun coming up in the morning and that's also where we get into a huge other sort of tangle of you know questions around uh, the child getting to sleep sleeping through the night mm-hmm. sleeping in their own bed yep. uh, you know sleeping um, uh, consistently and then also certainly having naps the child is sleeping anywhere from you know 12 to 14 uh, the uh, you know, hours a day in toddlerhood you know sometimes even more um but With that said, they also, as they progress uh, into later childhood, uh, so the amount of sleep that their body needs decreases, um, and that will continue throughout the lifespan. So in general, um, and there's some great websites, whether it's the American Academy of Sleep Medicine or uh, the National Sleep Foundation, which has specific hours and allotments of sleep for what are expected, Provides ranges uh, of children's sleep. Um, As we move into the sort of 6 to 12-year-old age group, we're talking anywhere from 9 to 12 hours per night of sleep. Um, And again, I say it's a range, and I I really want to emphasize that because different bodies require different sleep needs. And so it's important that we say a range because of the fact that Uh, to mandate a child to get a certain amount of sleep. If it does not align with what they actually need, that can actually cause problems for the child in terms of sleep. As we move into middle school, high school, as you know, entering puberty, so that uh, 13-ish group, 13 to 18, generally we're looking more towards 8 to 10 hours of sleep. And as you get older, in general, we say a minimum of 7 hours of sleep for adults, um, but adults are like kids, there's a range. And yeah. so anywhere from seven to nine hours is, is generally as we start looking into getting into adulthood.
0: Great. Um, so we'll we'll kind of move into adolescent sleep issues, which I know is something you've been um, spending a lot of yeah. time focusing on in a minute. But but the Children's Agenda, we focus as an organization heavily on early childhood, um, uh, preschool age, as in before school age children. Um, so what are the kind of the the typical challenges that, that parents with, with young children, children who aren't yet in elementary school, um, face, and, and you mentioned some of those sort of family dynamics, you know, a two-year-old can't be up all night by themselves, you know, someone's going to be with them. What are some of those, those dynamics that families face and those key challenges um, that um, some children and their families encounter to getting into a to kind of a solid sleep schedule where that child is able to fall asleep on their own in the room by themselves? Um, what, are, what are some of those those challenges that families face?
1: So I view sleep as this sort of bio-behavioral sink in that everything goes down it and comes out in a child's sleep. So if you can think about anything that is affecting the family dynamic, that has a potential impact on children's sleep. So whether that be the uh, parents' or caretakers' relationship, Um, So in the past, we've looked at the marital relationship, but, you know, the co-parenting relationship um, can certainly affect sleep. Um, In addition, a parent's understanding and their attitudes towards sleep are going to affect the child's sleep. So if a parent doesn't necessarily value sleep or doesn't necessarily, it's not on their forefront as they think about the child's development, um, it very well might uh, impact, you know, that child's ability to get to sleep. Um, family routines, family uh, sort of stability matters. Um, you know, we also look at sleep in terms of the environment in which ter- uh, children sleep. So I can talk about the environment in terms of a family and the family environment, but I can also talk about the physical environment. Yeah. So we know that environments that um, are, have more clutter, more germs, more uh, challenging you know, places to sleep are gonna challenge that child's sleep. Um, And so especially uh, families that are challenged uh, socioeconomically um, and the challenges that accompany that Um, you know, whether it be not having a consistent bed space, you know, Mm -hmm. for the child to have, whether it be uh, inconsistent temperatures in the room, um, those things can certainly affect uh, the child's sleep. On top of that, if you take a parent's work schedule, um, if there is a inconsistent work schedule, or if that parent or guardian, this caretaker is not able to provide a child with a routine in terms of especially the young child in getting ready for bed, that can be really problematic for them to get consistent sleep. Gotcha.
0: Now, is there any truth to, uh, you mentioned earlier, that the amount of sleep that children need, and that varies. Um, I've noticed, you know, I have two young children um, about two and a half years apart, and so they're obviously at different parts of their their journey to being able to fall asleep. Um, uh, But I've also, just comparing my four-year-old, uh, when she was a year and a half to my uh, year and a half old. Now, some of that I completely attribute to how we've handled getting our kids to sleep. But it also seems that our our younger child just has an easier time falling asleep earlier. Uh, and she also wakes up a lot earlier. And then our our older child uh, seems a bit more like me, a bit more of a night owl. Um, and, you know, getting her to bed, particularly in the summertime, is, is can be a challenge. Uh, does that hold, you know, people talk about, people being night owls, and, and does, is that grounded in anything innate in that child? Is it their, is it their the kind of nurture, the environment that they were exposed to? Are there differences in, in someone's circadian rhythm that, that would, you know, present so that some as an adult, you know, some adults are dead tired at 10 o'clock and others are, you know, get to bed at midnight and they function well throughout the day. But what leads to that, I guess yeah. would be the question.
1: So there are a number of pieces one is is very much innate there is a genetic piece to our sleep so some kids are larks and some are owls mm-hmm. um, some you know wake up and thrive in the morning uh, some are incredibly sluggish and have a hard time yeah. and want to be awake at night especially as you mentioned in the summer there are also environmental pieces to that and so to the extent that uh, a room is not dark as the child's trying to get to sleep, that's going to potentially impact their sleep. So, There's a whole, if we look at the child in the center of sort of these concentric circles or these Mm -hmm. circles, you know, going out, I mean, you have the the child at the center, you have, you know, the next circle out is, you know, parent and parenting um, and the sleep environment. And then as you move further out, you have uh, societal pieces and other larger uh, issues, you know, including, you know, what time of the year it is. You know, and so, you know, all of these different things um, can impact the sleep. And so, you know, for instance, you mentioned I'm you're more of a night owl. So your house is going to be louder or buzzing a little bit more. Um, Lights might be on more, Mm -hmm. um, you know, as you're in the later evening. And to the extent that those lights are on and your child's exposed to it, you know the the production of melatonin. If we go yeah. biologically thinking about sleep, um, one of the central processes in sleep is the production of melatonin. And the production of melatonin starts occurring in the evening when there's a certain uh, uh, frequency of light, and that gets uh, the brain, the hypothalamus, uh, to start um, signaling to produce melatonin. So melatonin is a natural sleep. Producer, it 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 gets us, um, you know, ready for bed, and it's not the thing that necessarily puts us to sleep, Mm -hmm. um, but it gets us ready for bed, and so to the extent that a child is on screens or even just exposed to, uh, you know, lights in a house, um, that has the potential to uh, slow that process down. Um, now, there are a lot of other processes that in the evening, and this is why we come back to sleep routine, which is really important, in that if a child is revved up uh, for whatever reason, um, it could be running around and excited. It could also be they've seen something on the screen that is cognitively uh, exciting for them. Yep. You know, their brain is you know, running around a little bit more, figuratively speaking, that can inhibit the sleep process. So I come back to this idea, especially with young children, about why a routine is so important, uh, especially a routine that helps the child uh, calm down and uh, sort of slow its pace uh, so that um, sleep is more likely to occur.
0: Great, very helpful. You mentioned earlier that adolescents, um, you know, as, you, as someone hits puberty, um, they, the amount of sleep that they need decreases. Um, but we haven't yet talked about the times in which they go to bed and how that may change as they you know, reach those teen years. So, so every, every child, every young person is different, but in broad strokes, what happens as someone enters their teen years in terms of, of, of maybe melatonin production, or you're the expert and this is not yeah. me, but, but their sort of ability to get to sleep and, and when they want to sleep and when they feel ready to sleep, what happens in those, in those teen years? Yeah, so I want to
1: start with, I think it's a little bit of a misconception that teens need less sleep. Okay. So teens still, just because they enter puberty doesn't mean that they need less sleep. Yeah. And it's important that we afford teens enough sleep, and that's uh, we can get into that in a little bit. But essentially, what happens biologically during puberty is that the circadian rhythm shifts, and so the simple way of thinking about it as a teen uh, wants to go to bed later and wants to wake up later. Okay. And so it's almost like here we are in the East Coast. It's almost as if, you know, the child is moving toward the Midwest or out to you know, Colorado, even California, yeah. you know, in terms of time zone change. And so what's really important about that is, and there are a number of hypotheses as to why their circadian rhythm is shifting, whether it's um, how they respond to light, um, uh, among other things. But because of that shift... We often think of ah, oh, my teen doesn't wake up until eleven or something yeah. like that. Um, and there's but a number of factors for that. One is just simply their their time when their body is ready to go to sleep and ready to wake up has shifted. Uh, we also have a habit now of not allowing teens to get enough sleep, and this comes back to the start school later's movement. Okay. Um, and specifically, uh, we still ask teens to get to school very early in the morning uh you know some closer to seven um some schools closer to eight start, you know start at eight um more enlightened schools start at 8 30 or after but with that said uh because of the fact that teens circadian rhythms have shifted sort of push them later and because of the fact that schools start earlier the opportunity that teens have for sleep gets decreased yeah. So that's a really important piece. The other piece is that being a teen, there are certain things calling. You know, whether it's texting friends at night, socially, you, know, you are more connected with others. Yeah. Uh, you also may have to uh, do more homework because high school and the demands of school increase. Um, so you know, there's more after-school opportunities if kids play sports and whatnot. So all of these things are infringing or impinging on teens' time and to the extent that we are uh, they are going to bed later biologically naturally right yeah. um, but we're still asking them to wake up earlier they're not getting enough sleep so what happens is over the course of a school week especially they're getting sleep deprived and when the weekend hits, they try and make up for that in some ways. Even though you technically really can't make up sleep, they try and make up for it and They are exhausted, so they sleep in yeah. later on the weekends. Now, the real problem with this, and in the college that I work at where we see this a lot, is that if you sleep until noon on Saturday, Saturday night, you're wired. You're yeah. ready, you know, and you're up until 2 a.m. because, you know, that's the sort of length of your day. And so Sunday morning, you sleep till 10, 11, 12, maybe even 1. Yeah. Sunday night you can't get to sleep, and by Monday morning, starting very early, you begin that cycle again. And so we call that social jet lag, okay. and that has a real pernicious, you know, really uh, difficult or challenging effect on on teens um, and college students'
0: uh, performance in school and their lives in general. So do you know why we decided to, um, as a society, you know, a public school system or whatever, it's start older, um, you know, secondary school students? Before elementary students, typically, I mean, it probably varies place to place, but my understanding is most schools, you know, there's the high school kids or middle school, maybe you know, start at what you said, 8 o'clock, um, and then the elementary students are, you know, at nine or something mm-hmm. like that, as, as a typical pattern. Why did? How did that develop? Is that just a historical accident, or was there? What was the? Do you have a sense of how that came about?
1: Well, I, I always come back to. The school year was determined on based on an agrarian calendar yeah. to start and I think in terms of the older kids going to school earlier there are a number of factors one that's when the buses decided to come pick them up and you could say well what if we switched it and the younger kids you know go earlier yeah that's a great question the other piece is older kids have more after school activities so they need more time after school yeah. so if they start earlier they have more time for those after school activities so I think to a certain extent the you know the nature of um, kids in high schools starting earlier was driven by a lot of those pieces as well as there's a certain piece as well that if a parent is working and they have different age children that older child can be at home when the younger child returns yeah. so there are a number of factors that are at play as to why we picked the Older kids to start school earlier was not informed by a developmental psychologist for yeah. a sleep psychologist.
0: Yeah, they weren't there yet, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, what are some of the, the sort of negative consequences for, for teens who I think you illustrated really clearly that how they get sort of crunched for sleep? They're having a harder time going to, to bed early, and it's, it's, it's a biological reality of what they're facing, but you know, school starts at the same time you know, every day, whether they went to bed at 10 o'clock or midnight. Um, so what are some of the, the negative consequences of that lack of sleep? How does that show up in um, whether it's academics or you know, social-emotional health or behavioral health? You know, However, what, what are some of the, the downsides that, that young people face? So the,
1: the short answer is there are many downsides, yeah. and they're in all of the areas you just mentioned. We'll start with the most severe, which is that sleep-deprived kids um, have been shown to have higher rates of uh, suicidal ideation, um, higher rates of suicidality. They have higher rates of fatal car crashes and car, crash- car crashes in general. Um, so quite simply, their lives are at stake. Yeah. A second piece, um, talk about schools, they perform academically worse. They have harder time concentrating on material, so that certainly impinges their ability to perform academically. Socioemotionally, kids certainly have uh, struggles when you know, lack of sleep is associated with increased rates of depression, with anxiety, you know, greater issues with peers. In fact, one of the concerns throughout the period of teens and young kids not getting enough sleep is that uh, we have high rates of uh, diagnoses of um, ADHD. And some of the symptoms of ADHD um, are very similar to what a kid looks like when they don't have not gotten enough sleep. And so, not to say that pediatricians and psychiatrists and psychologists have been misdiagnosing, um, but there is certainly a masking effect in terms yeah. of kids who are not getting enough sleep exhibiting those same behaviors. Yeah.
0: yeah, so if we did have a very different school start time, which we'll, we'll get into, you'd see maybe you know, at a population level, lower rates of, of diagnosis of, of those things. Not to say that an individual diagnosis is incorrect, but um, you may see some, some big picture better changes. Better mental health. Yeah, and yeah. Better yeah, academics.
1: Absolutely. You would see um, kids doing better in their earlier periods. So yeah. those first three periods of the day, uh, studies have shown better uh, SAT and, you know, uh, sort of high school standardized test yeah. results, better grades, better socio-emotional, better, you know, mental health.
0: Part of what, so we're recording this at the, it's the end of August, schools starting back up, um, you know, very shortly. I'm not quite sure when this is going to run, but, but there's a good chance that schools starting right around the time that, that this podcast airs. Um, so there's a couple things I want to focus on that are kind of topical right now. Mm-hmm. One is for a lot of students, uh, particularly um, students who have been on, you know, some form of remote learning or, or hybrid learning for the past you know, year and a half now, um, this is a big transition back for them, um, back to school as opposed to, to learning from home. Um, obviously there was virtual learning, but you didn't have to get up really early, ride a bus all the way across town, things like that. Um, and then other students who were in school last year, they, whether in the hybrid or full-time environment, they still, you know, it's been summer, they've probably been going to bed a bit later, all that. Do we see kind of a seasonality of some of these things as kids' sleep schedules change at the end of the summer into the fall? you see higher rates of certain issues pop up, or is it, uh, is it sort of more cumulative, I guess, over the, over the course of the year? Well, two things come to mind immediately as you're talking. I mean,
1: one is during the pandemic, uh, kids who were more involved with online or hybrid uh, got more sleep. Okay. So, in some ways, the pandemic has been better because of the fact that that constraint of when school starts was removed, and so kids actually uh, got more sleep. So that, in some ways, was was helpful for, especially for teens. Yeah. Uh, The other piece is uh, one of my friends uh, works on the inpatient unit uh, for kids uh, at at Strong, and she always reports seeing an influx of. Uh, Of teens uh, when the school year starts. And that is, you know, I wouldn't put that necessarily to sleep, but it's interesting when the school year starts, there is an increase in terms of the mental health concerns of of students. Especially as we talk about the transition, what you just mentioned is that we have kids who over the summer are much less regulated in terms of their activities, and so... There's something really important around the structure of the school day that really matters in terms of children's uh, sleep. And specifically, you know, when that structure of school is in place, they tend to have more physical activity, they tend to have less screen time, um, and their diet tends to be better. Yeah. And so during the summer and when, you know, school is out and uh, to a certain extent, um, You know, pieces of this perhaps happened during the pandemic, but, um, you know, during the summer, uh, kids have less uh, structured activity, tend to have less physical activity. They tend to have more access to non nutritious, delicious food. In fact, when kids are sleep deprived, you're more likely, they're more likely to seek out those high caloric, taste good. Treats yeah. um, by the nature of just simply that's what their uh, you know their body craves, and w- when they are lacking sleep. Another piece is the the nature of screen time you know increases uh, certainly for kids during the summer. So all of those pieces can begin to change. School can be a really helpful piece in terms of setting up a structure yeah. for kids to be more successful. Now the hard part is that how do we go from summer to school? And I think what pediatricians and sleep folks will certainly tell you is that we want to begin to get them ready for school in advance of when school actually yeah. starts. And so to the extent that you can plan even two days, ideally a week or so, um, of getting the body closer to, you know uh, going to bed and waking up during that natural, school time and so for teens it's okay if you know it's still off by an hour or even two you know in the sense of if they're uh, if they need to wake up uh, at six fifteen for school to get there and whatnot even if they're still sleeping until 7, 7.15, 8-ish, that's okay. But you want to get them working towards that mm-hmm. wake-up time of when they're going to be you know, waking up for school and then also adjusting the sleep time so that they're getting enough sleep. And that pattern is
0: important because the more you can sort of prep the body for it, the better the transition yeah. into school is. Yeah, Set up that routine ahead of time so mm-hmm. that they can the body can begin to adjust and there's obviously a lot of other changes they're encountering a lot of other kids for the first time and in, in a while their brain has to start focusing on academics again so there's a lot of stressors that that a child is yeah. facing as they as they start that school year so if you can get the sleep a little bit more on track or make less of a shock to their system right they've got a little more capacity to handle I actually
1: I want to put one more uh, plug out there which sure. I uh, point in which um, Dr. Craig uh, Canapari a uh, great sleep medicine person, but he made a great point recently, uh, which is when we think about the pandemic and immune functioning, well, our immune system is very much dependent on how much sleep we get. Yeah. And so to the extent that we are getting enough sleep, that is optimizing our immune system, helping us to fight off infections and fight off uh, viruses. Yeah. So to the extent that parents are nervous about their kids going back to school in the pandemic, Sleep is really important to that, as well as you know the stronger an immune system, better sleep the kids going to yeah. get. So there's there's very much an interplay, but it's really important I think during the pandemic to emphasize sleep because of just simply it's uh, natural protective factor against you know the coronavirus.
0: Yeah, and and the common cold and other things that sure. children face. Sure. Right, I mean that's I think I got more colds in the first couple of years of my children's lives than that i'd had in the prior 10 and some of that was because they were in or my older daughter was in child care at the time and more exposure and stuff but it was also to your earlier point like we were exhausted you right, know and so right. like if you're getting a lot less sleep your body's just it's worn down and you're gonna not be able to to nip those things in the bud the same way that maybe yeah, you did you're did. you not as well protected yeah. yeah yeah absolutely so also this fall because of a real shortage in bus drivers which is a problem that many school districts around the the Region are facing, but it seems particularly acute at RCSD. The Rochester School District has a new bell time announcement where they've really broken up the uh, for the elementary grades. um, Three different start times. There's a seven thirty, there's an eight thirty, there's a nine thirty. So some kids are are starting school much earlier than others, and obviously their day ends a lot earlier, which may present some challenges for after school care and things like that. Do you have any thoughts on kind of how that's going to play out in those schools that have? really early start times um, versus those that that are starting kind of later than I think any school <laughs> that I've, I've seen you know a 9:30 start time is a is a really late start for for elementary students. So any thoughts on how that's going to play out? Well my first thought about it it playing out is that it's a great opportunity
1: for research. Yeah here we are in a sense having three different groups providing them with different start times. It would be a great opportunity for RCSD to actually help inform the community, uh, especially you know, the, the research community, um, but especially because RCSD is comprised of students who are socioeconomically challenged. Yeah. So to the extent that we can get some rich data on this natural experiment could be really helpful. That's one piece, that's sort of my personal thing aside. The research is always research. Right. <laughs> With that said, elementary schools have Developmentally, a large span of kids. Yeah, you have kids who are very much in early childhood, and you have kids who are entering puberty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, to the extent that these kids who are entering puberty and um, you know their circadian rhythms are shifting, that later start time could very much be you know a, a real save savior to them. Um, I think, in general, younger kids can tolerate earlier start times better than older kids yeah. and so that will be you know with that said depending on what their sleep schedule was leading up to school it's going to hit kids very differently in the in the start um so those 7:30 kids are going to have a very rude awakening if they've been waking up um you know at uh 9 or 9:30 or so yeah the other piece around how they've divided up the schools you know i i think I think it'll be interesting how it impacts families, especially. Yeah. So for families where you know parents are either have been at home when kids return home, or you know the alignment of, of work schedule and school schedules, um, for parents that have to leave for work generally after their kid gets on the bus, or you know that can be certainly thrown out of whack. I don't know how the schools were divided up, whether it was a lottery, yeah, um, and so. Uh, certainly I, I can imagine there are a lot of parents out there who feel powerless that their school start time just changed and they had no say in it
0: yeah and I also think about you know parents it's a group that contains many different individuals many different experiences and backgrounds mm-hmm. and I'm thinking for for myself you know I'm fortunate enough to have a um, a job where I have some flexibility if I need to you know leave early sometime because of this and that factor that's you know that's okay, right? If I, if if there was some some issue that presented itself where my school start time for my kids was was changed, I could probably, you know, I could work that out with with my employer, right? And they have that flexibility. A lot of parents, um, you know, particularly low income workers, don't have that same luxury where they, you know, they're much more subject to. They're told when they start their shift. Um, you know, people who work, um, you know, for hourly wages, people who work retail, people who are in um, you know, food service, things like that. Like, you know, if you work at that Tim Hortons, you got to be there when, that, when your shift starts at Tim Hortons or you're not hmm. working there for much longer. And so, you know, I worry um, particularly this this challenge for for RCSD parents, um, you know, which we know from all the, the demographic data, what you're talking about, you know, are, are much low, more likely to be lower income, um, you know, families that they won't have that same flexibility. So they're going to be, you know, you know, In the aggregate much more challenged to adapt to this this situation than um you know maybe a family in Fairport Mm -hmm. or something Mm -hmm. would be and and it's um again on top of all these other things that we're facing the start of this year which is not to blame rcsd they're trying to do the best they can with um a real um, staffing shortage which is showing up in all walks of life right now Mm -hmm. you know unfortunately as often happens it seems like you know rcsd students are taking the brunt of 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 some of these um, Negative events that are occurring, right. um, you know, in our community. Here. And if
1: you think about poverty as a stressor, yeah, whether that be the challenges to you know economically for a family, uh, but also how that you know impacts relationships within the family uh, and the dynamics within a family. That when you add on top of that, this new stressor of a school they're starting at a much different time than they, than a family was expecting. That is yet another challenge to the system and so yeah just like you said i think that uh, some families will have more flexibility in dealing with it and uh, on the whole um, there are going to be a number of families that are negatively influenced by it
0: yeah Yeah. so we'll see um so you have been involved um, with other you're not only a researcher into this into this area i should say um but you've also been um, spreading the gospel a bit of <laughs> of the challenge of early start times, particularly for for those adolescents. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there have been some successes and some progress, I guess, locally. So, what in a big picture sense, what's been happening locally um, to try to convince school boards and superintendents and, and others to to adjust their school start times? These things yeah. aren't set down from on high. We we set the times that the kids start their school day, right? So. Well, the, What's there's, been happening. there's a
1: great organization called Start Schools Later, um, and obviously, they're advocating to start high schools. Straightforward, very, very uh, right? <laughs> um, generally, the start time is eight thirty. Sort of eight thirty or later is is when they push for. Now, there have been across uh, Monroe County a number of parent parent groups that have pushed their schools to start later, and there have been a number of superintendents who have tried to. know listen and and perhaps even offered uh, the possibility for schools so uh, Rochester itself has a a range of schools that start uh, high school specifically that start um, between 730 and you know 830 and uh, some have started as late as 9 I think right now Fairport and uh, I believe Webster have uh, 830 or later start times Brighton and Pittsford have entertained the idea um, but Uh, my my understanding is that my most recent understanding is that uh, they've never they've not been successful in changing that start time different districts have different challenges whether it's interesting there are a lot of parents who support understand the importance of sleep want children to especially teens to have their uh, their high school starting later with that said there are coaches there are transportation uh, administrators there are school administrators um, there are even parents who, because of their work schedules and whatnot, um, don't want schools, you know, starting later. So the hardest part about the start school later movement is all of the different people who are involved in, in making the decision. What's really interesting, I think, right now is we're going to see something in California and that the state of California actually mandated or put in a, a law into effect uh, saying that um, high schools uh, should start at 830 or later, and this is true. It'll be true for most all of the uh, secondary schools in California um, because of the recent bill that passed and that'll be starting up this year. So hmm. California is actually you know, really progressive in that sense, yeah. um, as well as our neighbors to the north, Canada actually has a pretty strong movement in terms of uh, later start times. Um, so uh, there is um, there are a whole bunch of factors. It's, it's never an easy decision or an easy process, although there are certainly ways to help move the process forward. Um, and uh, start school Leaders is, you know, later is, is one organization that's really been helpful to parents and groups to help them structure their arguments and structure yeah. their um, work so that they can help move forward with that uh, process.
0: Yeah, it seems like it's a bit of a it's a collective action issue, right? So mm-hmm. it's one school district can do it, but mm-hmm. there are challenges with when sc- the track meet starts between two sure. <laughs> schools, you know, and, and and those things are, you know, those those are important. Those mm-hmm. are important for. Particularly teenagers who derive a lot of um, right. you know benefit from school sports and other competitions and, and things like that. But it would also seem to me that if if every district agreed to do it within a particular region, you'd see some of those other effects of, of obviously the sports games start you know mm-hmm. at a more standard time that's that's agreeable to the later start. But but then also employers have a better sense of when their you know workers mm-hmm. kids will be going to school. Maybe you can start to resolve some of this you know issues with older children having to watch their younger siblings when they got the bus and I don't know exactly what you do with the younger elementary um start times when you adjust the older but but you know you can start to work through some of these things as a, as a broader mm-hmm. community as opposed mm-hmm. to you know I don't know you have 26 school districts or something right. you know and and that's that's hard because it's everything happens at that local level we have local control of schools here but it'd be good if this was something that whether it was through BOCES or through um you know the Monroe County School Board Association there was some kind of joint intention to to do Mm -hmm. this um to say nothing of of at a statewide level Mm -hmm. you know the regents or state education department urging districts to to do this or providing some bridge funding to help them you know figure out some of their transportation needs something like that i mean my my brain always goes to the let's get the biggest policy solution as possible but it's great for parents to do that individually at their schools and we should encourage that but if we could find some way to work on this as as a kind of a broader collective sure seemingly capture a lot more um, success at some level, I'd guess. My
1: biggest push for this is it's about adolescent health. It's about children's health. Yeah. I remarked a while back where I was talking with uh, a certain school and the coaches were coming up to me and talking about how much of a hardship it would be if the kids started later. And here are coaches, athletes, you know, for working with athletes who are obviously working with the health of their athletes. Yeah. Well, if we can, you know, just reframe it and say this is, you know, about adolescent health. Yeah. Mental health, physical health. I mean to the extent that Uh, rates of suicide have increased um, over the past decade for teens um, and to the extent that more better rested teens we decrease that rate of suicidal ideation and suicidality we to decrease um, you know rates of uh, driving fatalities that in and of itself speaks to the importance of of this this importance of, of sleep so we are often concerned about what kids are eating um and the air that they breathe well i think of sleep you know very much on par with those things that it is something that is just fundamental to their their physical and mental health
0: yeah and i also it, it seems to me that you know i don't want to dismiss the logistical concerns that may exist and transportation costs and like i don't know what it what it would be to move you know the start time across the board um in various parts of our community but when you think about all of the issues that exist in the education space, um, and to, you know to, within a school, to say nothing of those that exist, you know between schools and and all the challenges we face as a community, it seems like cost of of moving start times to like let's say eight thirty a.m. Mm-hmm. Um, for adolescents is would have to be a lot lower relative to the benefit you get mm-hmm. than a lot of these mm-hmm. other interventions we're talking about. I mean, I'm all in favor of having more social workers and psychologists mm-hmm. and support mm-hmm. staff in schools and and, you know, we need more school nurses and, mm-hmm. and all mm-hmm. sorts of other supports. But if we could adopt some policies that lower the incidence of of children needing all these other interventions, that's that's a great preventive measure and it's it's gotta be a lot less expensive than You know, layering on um, all these other services to deal with some of the consequences of that early start time for, particularly for adolescents, right?
1: Yeah, I don't want to misquote the literature, but there's certainly literature on the cost and cost savings regarding school start times. And it is certainly one that is, I know, I, I believe when Brighton was entertaining the idea of changing school start times. They sent out a survey that basically said, you know, if we start at this time, the costs will be this much increase in terms Mm -hmm. of taxes and whatnot. But I think if we look at a larger, you know, go from 30,000 feet out to the extent that we can, you know, have to get a chance to decrease some of the costs of let's say you know attending to mental health because kids you know are getting better sleep um, yeah. then you know perhaps the cost benefit ratio in the long term is certainly going to, to play out yeah. um, but I certainly that's another one of the important factors that whether it scares a lot of schools or, or administrators in terms of you know the, how it's going to affect funding and, and the cost of operating schools um, that's something which certainly needs to be addressed in the question as we try and push high schools to start later
0: Great. So you also have a study that you are currently recruiting um, participants for, a family sleep study. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're trying to um, achieve with that? And we'll include in the, the notes for this um, podcast episode a link to where people can learn more and all that. But, but what are you, what's this, this new study you're trying to, to take on?
1: Yeah, so my body research really focuses on family, family dynamics and how that affects children's sleep and vice versa, how children's sleep affects the family dynamic. And so this current study that we're running is specifically looking at adolescent sleep, and we specifically targeted the transition from the summer back into the school year. Um, So while we are in the process right now of wrapping up uh, recruitment for uh, the adolescent sleep, so we call it a family sleep study, um, the goal of the study is really looking at what are the sleep patterns of of adolescents as you know in in the last few weeks of summer and how will they change so it's a longitudinal study we'll we'll survey kids uh, and parent a parent or caregiver um, during the summer and then about five to seven weeks into the school year um, to look at you know changes in their sleep habits changes in their mental health changes in their family dynamic um, the, another aspect of the sleep studies, we also were creating a questionnaire measure that looks at sleep environments. And so part of that is my interest in trying to understand all the different things that affect uh, teens' sleep and kids sleep is the environment in which they sleep. And so uh, part of the research is also developing this measure of, of measuring a, a child's sleep environment in the hopes that not only if we can measure it well, not only can we then help parents improve their child's sleep environment but we can also understand that as a predictor of uh, of children's in functioning and functioning and and family functioning so the current study of, even if we wrap up now and and this current uh, podcast sort of misses that date next summer uh, towards the end of the summer we will have another round of recruitment um and so we will be looking for families to Uh, one caregiver and one 12 um, to 18-year-old child to participate in the study, both at a sort of baseline survey during the summer, and then one, and then a a follow-up survey uh, questionnaire, uh, which would take place five to seven weeks into the school year.
0: Great. Um, So before I let you go, is there any any thoughts or questions I should have asked you that I didn't, that you'd like to, to get in? Or...
1: Well, I, I guess part of it is, you know, what to do if my child is not sleeping. Yeah, that's probably a separate series of podcasts sure. in and of itself. I think one of the pieces which really like parents and caregivers to know is uh, that a lot of the behaviors that we see, especially challenging behaviors uh, in kids, can be sleep driven. Yeah. and certainly affected by not getting enough sleep. Um, on the same side of things, uh, uh, one of the criteria for depression is too much sleep, and mm-hmm. so there is a happy medium. So yeah. I I would really like to put out there that there are a lot of important ways that we can help kids get to sleep, and the same way that when you go in for a checkup at a pediatrician, they ask you about all X, Y, and Z, they may ask a question about sleep, but that I, I'd like Parents and caregivers to really try and keep it more on the forefront because it is such a basic element of yeah. um, our our lives, our needs um, that it actually sometimes flies under the radar, and, and it's not necessarily what, what parents think as they think about their child's functioning. Yeah. So, and there are a lot of supports uh, for parents and caregivers out there, and for you know children um, on how to sleep better.
0: All right, great. So maybe we can include some of those. Uh, mm-hmm. Links to some of those resources locally um, in the show notes as well. All right. Well, Jack Peltz, it's been fun. Thanks for joining me here on Raising Rochester today. And uh look forward to, to connecting to you more about this uh, in the future. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining me today on Raising Rochester. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and family, including on social media. And feel free to send feedback or show ideas to me at pete at thechildrensagenda.org. Until next time, on behalf of the Children's Agenda, I'm Pete Nabosny.